That's what firefighters and, and fire chiefs and fire departments can do, is start preparing themselves for the training and then delivering the training that will provide them the awareness of ballistic vest protection, of threat awareness. You know, they can uh, look at a situation and determine what is and isn't a threat and then what to do about it. Those are the things that we need to be doing a better job of. Enchanted Sky Media. Media. Enchanted Sky Studios in Prescott, Arizona. This is Code 3, the Firefighters Podcast, hosted by award-winning journalist Scott Orr. Code 3 features interviews with leading members of the fire service, discussing firefighting strategies, tactics, and other topics you need to know more about. Now, here's Scott. That's right, and I will not let Parkinson stop me. Thank you for joining me again here on Code 3. This is the show for and about firefighters. We're informing and entertaining members of the fire service, just like you, from coast to coast. On May 15th, Appleton, Wisconsin engineer Mitch Lungard was shot and killed while on a medical run. A police officer was shot and survived, as did a bystander who was also hit. The call for a man having a seizure on a bus came out at 5.30 p.m. When the engine crew arrived and started treatment, the patient got off the bus and walked away. The specifics are still unclear, but the patient produced a gun and fired. Police shot back and killed him. Here to discuss the impact of this tragic situation is Mark Bayshore. With 37 years in emergency services, Mark is currently the Highlands County, Florida Public Safety Director. He spent six years as Chief of the Prince George's County, Maryland Fire EMS Department and five years as Emergency Manager in Mineral County, West Virginia. He's the executive editor of FireRescue1.com and FireChief.com. And Mark Bayshore joins me now. Welcome to Code 3. Hey, Scott. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So this was just a medical run. Is it time to start acting like the cops who say there is no such thing as just a routine traffic stop? Yeah, I mean, that's that's uh, really a tough one. I mean, we have said for years that the fire department, the fire and EMS departments, uh, they're ones that people look forward to us coming. They are happy about us being there, and we typically treat them with that reciprocal respect. You know, we, we come ready to do our job, and um, typically fire EMS departments don't look at every call as a threat. And... Ultimately, um, yeah, I, I think it's time that the fire and EMS departments really start taking a hard look at every call as a threat. Too many things happening, whether it's shootings like this, whether it's roadway incidents, whatever it is, somebody is out to get us. And I don't mean that as antagonistically as it sounds, but ultimately, somebody's always out to get us. And maybe it is time we start looking at everything as a threat. Now, Appleton firefighters have Kevlar vests that they could wear to dangerous calls. They weren't wearing them in this case. 
Does this incident suggest that we ought to be wearing them on every call, or is it just an unusual situation? Uh, you know, that's a tough one, too. The vests are not yet institutionalized across our industry. I can tell you that in the, the fire department where um, I'm now forming the, a combination department down here in Highlands County, Florida, we are uh, going through the evaluation process for VEST now, even here. Uh, it is something that isn't is institutionalized, but is something that departments are going to have to take long and hard looks at not only the purchase, but the policy and training that goes along with it. It's, it's not like uh, you can just throw them out there, put them on people, and expect, okay, they're protected. Uh, they do have to have, again, the department has to make the decision, First of all, are we going to buy them? Uh, if we are going to buy them and we're going to equip our people with them, are we going to require them to wear them all the time? That's not an answer that I can give every chief. I can tell you that if I find myself in the situation that I find Appleton in right now, I think that's, you know, the logical decision would be, okay, we're, we're going to have to start wearing them on every call. Whether that is the right decision or not is yet to be seen. I think that has to be an evaluation the chief in Appleton makes. Uh, in an evaluation every chief in the industry makes. But the logic in most of us will say, yep, it's time to just start wearing them on every call. The thing is, if your department hasn't had an incident like this, I can see it sort of like the seatbelt issue, which is, well, sure, I'll wear it every time except this call, and then except for these two calls, and then pretty soon you're not wearing them at all because you never needed them. And then that's when this happens. Yep, absolutely. And and that's what I'm saying. That's what's driving this thought process in things like this this podcast. It's a great opportunity to have the discussion. Uh, I'm not going to come out and outright say, yes, it's time we start wearing them on every call. But I do think it's absolutely worth the discussion. I think it's more than just Appleton. You can look back into my own personal experience in Prince George's County, Maryland with Skillet in 2016 when he was on a check on a welfare call, a medical call for check on a welfare, and he was shot and killed. We, at the time, did not have vests for any of our people except our tactical medics. And, you know, we we began the process of evaluating vests and how they could and should be worn. And before those decisions could all be made, I ended up retiring, and I believe they're still working on that. So it's not just limited to Appleton. It's happening everywhere. And uh, I think it is... It is time to start looking at everything as a threat. It's also time to start making those hard decisions about whether to wear these all the time. I don't think it's a discussion anymore of whether to buy them. I think we've answered that question now over and over. It's time to buy protective vests for fire and EMS people. Whether we wear them on every call or we allow the officers to have that discretion, that's what's, in my mind, still open to discussion. Well, you know, I'm reminded of the situation in California where the firefighters responding on a fire call were ambushed by the man who wanted to shoot them. I mean, in that case, I I think it would make, could possibly be unrealistic to say you should wear Kevlar while you're fighting a fire because it restricts movement a whole lot, makes the air pack hard to wear. But at the same time, if they'd had the vest, it it might not have turned out the way it did. Yeah, San Diego was a rough incident. That was one where, again, you talk about the, I talk about the discretion of the officer. Would they have chosen to wear them on an odor of smoke call? Most likely not. I mean, that's one of those calls. And and yes, it, 
It restricts movement. It adds weight to an already, you know, 70 to 85 pounds worth of weight added to you. We'll add that weight to it. It's also important to understand that the Kevlar or, or uh, ballistic vests, you know, whatever material they're made out of, they are not the end-all, be-all. They are not full encapsulating vests. They're protecting the core, and, you know, with that protection also comes the need for, for training, for uh, decision-making processes amongst our people to make sure that they have good threat recognition skills. It's not, uh, you know, I said it kind of in the beginning, it's not something just to throw out there. It's, it really is a lot more than just buying the vest and just getting people to wear them. We've got to focus on making sure people have got the training, the skills, and, and the knowledge, not only when the right time is to wear it, but how to use it and what the uh, realistic expectations of the protection is. And since you mentioned that, I'll point out that your average civilian will refer to a bulletproof vest, but they are far from bulletproof. Absolutely. And, you know, most of the vests that you see fire departments purchasing are not the highest level protection. The highest level of protection that protects against the highest velocity weapons if we were to expect fire and EMS people to wear those all the time, the ability for those people to move to move and maneuver in tight situations, again, with the extra weight on top of what they're doing, would truly restrict our ability to perform our job. And it's, you know, that, that's something where people have to realize, and that's part of the training. Those, uh, those vests, like you said, are far from bulletproof. And when we're dealing with the lower levels of protection based on, you know, the threat assessment, then uh, it, it just adds to the, to the understanding that they are not, they are indeed not bulletproof. Getting back to the situation at hand, Appleton has a population of about 70,000. It's not L.A., it's not Chicago. So this shooting reminds us that these events can happen anywhere. What can firefighters do to prevent future incidents like this one from happening, or is there anything they can do? I'm not sure that firefighters can prevent this kind of thing from happening with respect to the public's display of weaponry or uh, use of weaponry. That, that's not the firefighter's mission. Our, our mission is to respond to the you know, fire and EMS emergencies and deal with those. So what firefighters and EMTs can do is to better prepare themselves for threat recognition, for awareness training, for understanding what ballistic vest protection provides and doesn't provide, and how to deal with those situations, much like we've dealt with active shooter training and, and pretty much the, uh, the mantra of run, hide, fight is something that we've given the public that's totally unprotected. We haven't given firefighters any mantra to use other than wear your gear and, oh, here's a vest, let's put it on. Uh, we have got to start, as chiefs, we've got to start taking this serious. Uh, we are currently in Highlands County going through not only the evaluation of the vest, but we are searching out for companies that will come deliver some of the basic ballistic vest training for our fire and EMS people. We don't need necessarily to have SWAT team training for them. We don't need to have that high-level training. We need to have some basic awareness and understanding of what those ballistic vests will and won't do. And that's what firefighters and, and fire chiefs and fire departments can do more than anything is start preparing themselves for the training 
and then delivering the training that will provide them the awareness of ballistic vest protection, of threat awareness. You know, they can uh, look at a situation and determine what is and isn't a threat and then what to do about it. Those are the things that we need to be doing a better job of. You know, we do real good telling them how to recognize, telling firefighters how to recognize a backdraft getting ready to happen or, or getting ready to see a smoke explosion. We talk to them about reading smoke. We talk to them about looking at uh, roof structures and determining what's getting ready to collapse or not collapse, about uh, when flashover is going to occur. We do lots of great training with fires and those threats, but we do very little threat recognition training with respect to what would typically be considered either law enforcement or investigatory type of events. That's the best thing we can do right now and make sure that uh, our firefighters are fully aware of their surroundings and in, in a situation where they can recognize those threats and deal with them appropriately. Given what we know today and what we can do today, would you say that future fatal shootings like this are inevitable, or do you think they could possibly be avoided entirely in some way? I, I don't know that I'd say they're inevitable. I'm not sure that I can also say they're avoidable. I think absolutely there's more we can do to train our firefighters and EMTs and, and paramedics in threat recognition and in the more of the tactical fight that they may find themselves in. If we can do that and we can provide them with not only what people talk about active assailant or active shooter training, two, you know, really two different things about understanding the active shooter and the active threat, but then also responding to it with ballistic protection, uh, responding as part of a rescue task force if you have that, you know, if you have that level of training in your community. We've got to make sure that we're training to the level of expectation of the department and the level of preparedness within the community, and then we'll do the best that we can do to avoid these kinds of things. Uh, you can look at the incidents in New York, uh, up in the Northeast, several incidents where people lit fires and lured firefighters into situations and began shooting. Those are things with, and, you know, until they happen, firefighters are going to be going to fires, and EMTs and paramedics are going to be going to sick people and, and sick calls. The only way to avoid that type of thing is to send a police officer first into everything and have a police officer verify that the scene's safe before we send firefighters and EMTs in, and that's not a realistic expectation by any means. All right, we'll leave it there. Mark Bayshore, thanks for talking with me today on Code 3. Okay, thank you, Scott. I appreciate it, and everybody uh, wants you to stay smart and stay safe. And we put some more information about dangerous EMS runs on our website at Code3Podcast.com slash danger check it out all right that's it that's all for this edition of code three this time we talked about dangerous ems runs i'd like to hear what your department has been doing or not doing that might help avoid tragedies like this one just email me scott at code3podcast.com i'll be reading your comments on a future show Thank you for listening. I'll be back next time with more, and I hope you'll join me then. I'm Scott Orr, and until then, stay safe. Code 3 is a production of Enchanted Sky Media. To contact us, get more information on today's topic, or subscribe to the podcast, go to Code3Podcast.com.